good to see you. And you. Welcome you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 24th and the very last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24. There is no Luke 25, so we are at the end of the road, which is a happy thing because it's resurrection. It looks as though uh, we'll be headed to the New Testament book of James. So now that I said it, I'm pretty much committed. And we're going to go through, we don't necessarily go sequentially through the New Testament, but we have been through all sorts of books. Uh, We do stay in the New Testament on Sunday mornings, and we are headed to the book of James, a book that we have not done previously. One uh, minor little addendum to the announcements about Home Fellowship Group is it's a potluck. Please bring food. And I think I would suggest you just overdo it on the first one because nothing is more awkward to me than showing up and there's like a little salad to split among everybody. Uh, You know, you get a a lettuce leaf and, oh, can I have that uh, cranberry? (laughs) Yeah, don't do that. All right, Luke 24, you're headed that way. We're going to pick up at verse 13. Now, Father, we pray that you would, by the Holy Spirit that you have sent to dwell in our hearts, open the eyes of our understanding, that we might make sense of what you're trying to say to us. Put these truths into practice. Be doers of your word, not just hearers. And be blessed. Be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Here in the last chapter of Luke's gospel, as I mentioned here in chapter 24, it's time for the crowning glory of the gospel. Yes, it's good news that Jesus, the Son of God, or we call him God the Son because he is equal to God in every way, went to the cross to pay your debt and mine so that you don't have to die what is called in the Bible the second death. You have eternal life because of Christ paying your penalty. That's the good news. But even better news is that he rose from the dead. That is the crux of the gospel, that Jesus uh, rose from the dead and he he has an empty tomb. John 3.16, that I quoted when we were praying. God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, Can you imagine? Just whoever trusts in him shall not perish, shall escape the wrath of God and eternal damnation by simply trusting in the name of the Son of God and the person should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the glory of the gospel. But without the resurrection, I don't know if you've ever done this before, but there was a little string on my sweater once hanging off, and I just thought I'd get rid of it by pulling it. That was a mistake. You know what? I'm a guy. We do stuff like that. Girls would never do that. They see a string, they're like, oh, a string. You know, they know what to do. They'll get a scissors or they'll buy a new one. (laughs) Here we go, right for the jump. You would think I would have learned a lesson from last week. The Bible is very clear and carefully lays out 
the undeniable evidence that Jesus rose from the dead as he and the scriptures predicted he would. Because without a resurrection, Paul says, it's pathetic to have a religion where death is not addressed and conquered. It's just useless. I like what Martin Luther said, writing there in the 1500s. Our Lord has written the promise of the resurrection, not in books alone, but in every budding leaf and every blooming flower in springtime. God really wants us not to miss the incredible fact, foundation, the hope and the glory of the gospel that death is defeated. And from uh, somebody who could go into the ground, buried dead, up comes this beautiful form of this living thing. Over and over again, he shows us once a year how that is true in nature. And then just about on every page of the written word. Luke 24 has three events from Resurrection Sunday. It's very nicely ordered, especially for pastors. It's three nice sermons from Luke 24, all from that Sunday. So where the and the theme is the disciples are all grappling uh, slowly but surely coming to grips with this fact of his resurrection. So the, the first one is at dawn, Luke 24, the first scenario is kind of three snapshots. Snapshot number one was at dawn with the ladies at the garden tomb. Snapshot two is late afternoon with two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And snapshot number three is in the evening, Jesus with the official 11 disciples and some others. And so last week we saw the ladies at the tomb. This week it's two guys on the Emmaus Road. Uh, in trouble, and Jesus is going to come to their rescue. Now, there's a similar pattern in these three snapshots. Very interesting. The pattern goes something like this. The disciples are clueless. They can't seem to connect the dots in all three scenarios. They're lacking faith. They're confused. They're anxious. They're scared. They're downcast and depressed. Basically, it's due to their wrong thinking about God. And when you have the wrong thinking about God, the fruit of that is usually that kind of anxiety, fear, and depression. Now then, the next side to the pattern is Jesus will show up with a word of correction and instruction, and he opens their eyes. He gives them clarity. He wants us to know the truth and walk in the light. That is the nature of the gospel. He is the light of the world, after all. And so... We must pay special attention because this pattern that I just mentioned really continues in all of our lives. Me not getting it, Jesus coming alongside, drawing the truth of the problem out of me, addressing that, correcting it, and opening the eyes of my understanding. We all want that. We all get messed up. We all go down wrong roads and dark paths. We all have those moments, and we, we, we want to pay attention here because the pattern's over and over again. Clueless disciples, Jesus to the rescue. But there are things and principles that happen in these snapshots that will either maximize God getting through to you and you to him or hinder. So we pay special attention not just to learn the facts about these three scenarios, but Lord, How is it that I, as clueless as I can be, can get a little light 
as, as anxious and fearful as I can be, as, and as skeptical and doubting as I can be, how can I move from there to joy and confidence and peace? Well, pay attention. Don't do what they do that hinders them and do what they do that brings light and blessing. And so we already, last week we saw the ladies at the tomb. We were up at the crack of dawn with them, highly devoted women with their highly charged testimony from the garden tomb. The stone is rolled away. And by the way, the stone is rolled away to let people in, not to let Jesus out. He didn't need any help with the stone. Um, The body's missing. Two angels appear and set the ladies straight. What do they say? Remember last time? Come on, ladies. You're looking for life in a place of death. Remember what he told you. He's not here. He's risen, just like he told you over and over again. Go tell the boys. And so now it's the next snapshot, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Hmm. They st- stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and don't, do not know the things that have happened these, here in these days? What things? he asked. <laughs> yeah, Tell me all about it, kid. <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. Now that line is in there because they know something, there's a rumor about the third day. That's why they say, and by the way, today is the third day. Now, moving on. But um, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ, another word for Messiah, have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the whole Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? 
They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. Now, the disciples are talking to them now. They beat them to the punch. It is true the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon Peter. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Second snapshot of disciples grappling with the resurrection. It is one of my favorite incidents in the Bible. In fact, there's a famous painting. You've probably seen it. I'll put it up on the screen for you in just a moment. It's called The Journey to Emmaus. And uh, I love it. It was uh, done by a Swiss artist, Robert Zund, the 1800s. And uh, we're having technical difficulties. It hung in the, there we go. It hung in the Bible college dorm when I first became a Christian 31 years ago. In fact, it was in eyeshot of where my bunk was. And I used to lay there many hours just thinking about the meaning. There's God the Son in a body talking, explaining the scriptures, bringing the truth to guys who are just totally clueless. And he's just walking with them. It's just, just such a beautiful microcosm of the, of the Christian life. You know, our, our Christian life is called a walk. Are you, we'll say, is he walking with the Lord? I mean, this is a picture, really, of what it's all about. Jesus walking with believers, bringing them Gradual light and truth. Listen to this proverb. Chapter 4, verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. That's our life. Look at the pattern. At dawn with the ladies, just a little bit of light. In the afternoon with the two guys, more light. And then in the evening, full on Total recognition of Jesus. Touch me. He breathes on them, the Holy Spirit. He commissions them. It is awesome. It goes from a little light to a more light and to full light. Just like the proverb says. That's our walk. Now you're saying, well, you know, I've been walking for a while and things aren't getting lighter. In fact, they're getting a little darker. Well, in love, can I say that it might be user error um, and not a problem with the Lord, but maybe, you know, uh, in, in technological circles, they have lots of little uh, acronyms for how to explain that it's your problem and not theirs. There's PICNIC, P-I-C-N-I-C, problem in chair, not in computer. <laughs> Can I, can I say problem in pew, not in heaven? The problem is in you, not in the book. It's not in God. God's not the enemy. God's not the weak, troubled problem. It's in us, the weak sinner. You know, what's that proverb that says, uh, a man's own foolishness wrecks his life, and yet his heart rages against the Lord. What is that about us? 
Well, we all want our darkness to give way to light. We all want to get it. We all want to have Jesus open up our eyes and our understanding. So let's walk along the road with these guys and look for some helpful pointers. All right. Number one, if you're taking notes, the disciples are depressed. Number two, Jesus comes to the rescue. And number three, the problems are resolved. All right. Number one, the disciples are depressed. Now we we see these two guys. Two of them are uh, men from the wider circle of disciples. Now, you remember in Luke chapter 10, 72 disciples were sent out. Sometimes when we hear disciples, we just think of the apostles. But no, there were more than that, as Cleopas proves. So one is Cleopas and the other we don't know who that is. And the two of them are coming home from Jerusalem holiday weekend of Passover. They're coming home uh, from the holiday weekend to their small village, seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. And they're walking along, as most people did back in the day. And they have an opportunity to discuss everything that went on that weekend. Every sad, little, pathetic thing. The arrest and crucifixion of their hero, Jesus Christ, Now, they're depressed. The Bible says in the Greek they are skuthropos. Skuthropos. It means to be sad, miserable, to have a miserable countenance, to be utterly devastated. Now, my first thing I'd like you to see with me is that they are depressed without a reason. Now, there's normal sadness and unnecessary sadness. These men are not to be faulted for being sad They're in trouble because they're unnecessarily and unbiblically sad. There's a difference. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 4 says that there's a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. And, you know, on Friday, preceding their Sunday, it was a time to weep. They should have been skutropos then. And if you weren't devastated, there was something wrong with you. You see? So there was a time to weep, a time to mourn, but now it's time to move on from that. When somebody says to me, I'm depressed or sad about something, and I ask them, what's up? They may say, I have a mental illness. Or I have parents who split up, or I lost my job. My kids are hurting, or something awful just happened. And I say, you know, you're supposed to be sad. They're so relieved because immature Christian understanding is is that faith negates normal human emotion that God gave us. We can be sad when it's appropriate to be sad. Uh, Jesus in the garden. Let me just quote him. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. As one of the disciples going to say, hey, Lord, come on, have a little faith. (laughs) Honestly, I hope not. (laughs) I hope you wouldn't be like that. But there are people like that. Um, It's okay to feel grief. Now, that immature Christian forcing a joyful perspective on someone who's grieving does more harm. I love the proverb 25 verse 20. That says, like one who takes away a jacket on a cold winter day is the person who sings songs to a heavy heart. You make it 
worse. You bring more pain when you can't understand that mature Christian matches the emotion. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Be sad with those who sad. In other words, enter, commiserate, sympathize with what's going on when it's appropriate to do so. That was Romans chapter 12, by the way. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, this day, however, Jesus is not going to commiserate with these guys because they are abnormally depressed. He doesn't commiserate with us in our sin. And so, their sadness is unfounded, unnecessary. You know, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, Hey, we grieve, but we grieve kind of in a different way than unbelievers. We grieve with hope. We don't grieve like there's no tomorrow and there's no hope. So, yes, we grieve, but we grieve kind of with an eye toward redemption, with an eye toward someday this is going to resolve, with an eye toward Romans 8.28. God says, I will work and cause all things to to work together for your good. If you love me and you're called according to my purpose. So what am I saying? Yeah, Christians who suffer, suffer in hope. And they're waiting for the day that they're going to heal. They're going to embrace God's promises and they're going to get over it, move on, heal and embrace the promises and presence of God. Now let us be quick to assess when that is the case for us and slow to assess when it's your turn to be moving on from your place of grief and sorrow. Amen? That needed an amen. I don't like to tell you when to amen, but if I were you, I would have amen there. All right. Secondly, they're depressed because the Lord didn't do what they, what they wanted him to do. Oh, we had hoped. That our days of serving under those Roman soldiers was over. He was there at Passover. Two million of us. We had hoped he was going to do it this way. Come in on a donkey and then knock some heads around and glory from heaven the way he's coming the second time. They wanted that to happen. But he didn't. So we're frustrated. We're sidelined. We're sad. We're grieved. We're not playing anymore. We're going home. We're going to pick up things as usual tomorrow. Why? Because he didn't do it my way. He allowed things to, to happen that caused pain and confusion. I'm done with this. Be careful. Do you know how many people in 31 years I have talked to who said, oh, I don't talk to God. He let my mother die when I was eight. I am honestly very sorry to hear that your mother died when you were eight. But can we please get angry at the, the real problem, the real problem of sin and the devil, not at the one who's trying to save us? You see, why step on your own air hose, man? I mean, does that make sense? I, honestly, it just doesn't make sense to me. I, I've had some really bad head-spinning stuff happen to me, but... You know, it just doesn't make sense to slap God in the face. It really just doesn't. It doesn't help me. You know, I'd like to slap other things in the face, you know. I don't mean, uh, yeah, whatever. So, yeah, so don't do that. 
just just don't God's got a plan for you. He's got a, a good intentions. You played a part in messing up things. Sorry, <laughs> somebody had to tell you. <laughs> now, thirdly, they're depressed because they don't have the best walking partner. Can you imagine? This is what I imagine. They're feeding each other in this endless cycle of despair. Jesus is dead and buried. Yeah, he is. Way dead and buried. (laughs) It looked like he was the one, but I guess not. Yeah. Who can have a dead savior? Sorry, I don't know who has the southern accent, whether it's Cleopas or (laughs) the other one. I don't know why I do that. Whenever we get a little dull, we go to the south or to New York. (laughs) When we get mean and angry, we go... I'm from New York. Thank you. All right. Can we move on? Thank you. Uh, They say, you know, the reports about him being alive can't be right. Those crazy women. Yeah, those crazy women. Around and around. You know what the Bible says? Two are better than one because they can help each other succeed. Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9. God gives us each other. So that one will have the common sense to know this conversation has gone south. Can we stop and pray? We're just commiserating. Husbands and wives do this all the time. I'd be driving with with wife. (laughs) I just dropped a little pronoun. My wife. I'm driving with the wife. And I'll say something, and then she'll say something, and then we're just, I can feel it. We're just going to dig this thing into the grave. And then suddenly, and it's usually her, she'll say, you know what? Why don't we think about something positive right now? Hey, why don't we pray? You know, Cleopas needed a better partner, and his partner needed somebody a little bit more brighter and optimistic than Cleo. Honestly, when you sense that you're stuck in a rut, and you're not going where you should be, you know, you might want to change your walking partner to somebody who'll say, hey, that's not right. I know you feel that way, but that's not right. You know, this conversation has gone bad about that person. You know, you're talking about another person, both of you, and you both realize you both know we've gone into gossip now. You both realize it's like the Holy Spirit screaming, gossip! And you hear it, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Somebody needs to say, hey, Cleopas, he did promise that he was Israel's redeemer. And the ladies did say, and the disciples checked it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we need that. And finally, in this point, uh, they're depressed because they have facts without faith. They know a lot of stuff. They know his name, where he's from, from verses 19 to 24. They know he's a prophet, mighty of God. They know he's a miracle worker, and he teaches with this unique, crazy authority. They know he was crucified. They know about the third day. They know about his promise to redeem or save Israel. They know others had said that they had seen angels, and the angels said he's alive. They know a lot of stuff, lifeless Useless facts. Facts without faith equals death. It doesn't matter. There will be Bible scholars in hell. 
who know way more than the average Christian who will be in heaven. Why? Because Jesus put it this way to the Bible scholars. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that in them is life. But they are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me. John chapter 5. You will find that exact quote. It's not about how much you know. It's about your heart, what you do with the fast, what you do with the knowledge. That is what will save you. And these guys go through the list, little Bible encyclopedias they are. You know, we know this, we know that, we know this, we know this, and dead, dead. No life. Hebrews 4.2, the Jews in the wilderness actually had the gospel preached to them like us. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard did not combine it with faith. You must combine the word in a personal, practical way. This is about me. God is talking to me. There are principles in this story for me. Therefore, since I believe that, my behavior is going to change to reflect that I have faith and that that is what they're missing. They don't combine it with faith. So, you know, you can know there's a fire in the house. You can know that the boat is sinking. You can know that the bridge is out. Or you can know that there's gold in them, there are hills. Or you can know there's a cure for your particular kind of cancer. You can know that there's a way to get more money back on your tax return. You can know all of that stuff until you believe it and do something about it. It's useless. Somebody told me once, hey, I was Googling around on this site that says unclaimed monies. And for fun, I found something for me. And for fun, I Googled your name in there. And up came, yes, Ross Ryman has unclaimed monies. So how do you know that I believed him? This is how you know. I went on the site. I put in my name. I filled out the form. They sent me a check for $250 from an unreceived uh, insurance reimbursement years ago. I cashed the check. That's how you know I believed. Do you see? These guys know stuff, but they don't believe it. What does it matter what you know, sir? Doesn't matter. Apply it. It means something to you. Or it's not going to work. So they're floundering. They're in trouble. Jesus to the rescue, point two. The Lord Jesus comes to the rescue. And he, you know, we see them now on the sad road. Sullen faces, defeated tones, slouched shoulders. A gray Eeyore cloud over them. (laughs) As they walk along, you know, drowning in their sorrows. And that's when it happens. (laughs) A stranger, all of a sudden, in stride with the two of them. And that's how it always happens. Jesus always pulls up to a believer in trouble. Always, 100% of the time, he is there. That's his nature. When a true believer is in trouble, the Lord Jesus is never very far away. So perhaps Jesus caught up to them and entered their stride or slowed down so they would fall into his stride. But Emmanuel, God with us, is now shown up to walk the Christian walk with two guys whose hearts are are right. They're in the right place. They're just messing up, as we are prone to do. 
Here's the paraphrase. The two are walking along thoroughly engrossed by their own pathetic discussion about Jesus when they notice the third guy has slipped into stride with them. They had no clue it was Jesus. What's the latest, guys? What are you talking about so intensely? The two are stunned. They stop and gawk at the Lord in disbelief. You must be from out of town, not to have any idea what's been happening here in the last few days. Seriously, you don't know? Jesus says, why don't you tell me all about it? (laughs) And so, you know, honestly, he said that with a smile, because honestly, Cleopas, Jesus is the only one who really knows what's going on. You guys don't know what's going on, and now you're going to school him. That's not cool. All right, so number one, look at Jesus' M.O., all right, how he acts. Jesus draws near. That shouldn't surprise you because he is God with us. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to those who are brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Whether you know it or not, the Lord said, I walk with you. I'll be in you. I am with you. I walk with you. Whether you usually, like them, don't get it. Usually retrospectively, like them. Oh, that was the Lord back then. Yeah, we do a lot of that. Just like this picture here. But whether you know it or not, the Lord said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. That would mean he walked in here with you. And stride with you. And he will walk out with you just like that. He is that close and closer to the New Testament believer who actually, according to the Bible, has the Holy Spirit within. He says, oh, oh, I'm way closer than sitting across from you at the table. I'm, I'm in your very being. I'm that close to you. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. You got to live that way. The three men, the three Hebrew young men who didn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar's worship idol and they get thrown in the furnace. Three guys in trouble. Nebuchadnezzar looks in and he says, Hey, I got it written down here. Didn't we tie up three men and throw them in the furnace? Yes, Your Majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. That's his way. When you're hurt, when you're lonely, when you're sad, when you're confused, he's right there at just the Bible over and over again. And we're just, duh. And we go all over the place looking for answers and light and remedies. And he's like, I'm right there for you. But you have to access that through faith, through the fellowship. And Jesus not only draws near, he draws the problem out. Did you notice in the Gospels that he's constantly asking questions and pulling things out? He's not always telling them, here's your problem. He's asking them, and then they say it, and he goes, aha, there it is. I love the proverb that says, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. When God comes alongside, he gives us the insight to take what's at the bottom that we don't even understand 
It's a deep well, the Proverbs says. Who can go there except God who's in there? And he helps draw the thing out. And look what he does with them. Uh, He says, what's going on? And they go, stuff. And he goes, like what? He wants specific information. And as it gets drawn out of you, he was able to go, bingo, there's your problem. And look what happens. They start giving the list. It's this and that and this happened and this happened. And then he get, they get to our ladies have seen angels and said he's alive. And the apostles confirm the tomb's empty. And he says, bingo, you don't have faith. You don't have faith in them and you don't have faith in the word of God. That's your problem. And so we get to the rebuke here. Now, he, foolish, unfortunately, is a poor translation. Remember when Jesus said, anybody who uses, is angry and calls somebody a fool, that's a bad thing. It's not that word. That's moros in the Greek from the word moron. He's not calling them morons. This word means to be without knowledge. It means, quite frankly, to be clueless. So he's saying, here's the paraphrase. When they mention the testimonies, they disregard. The Lord says, come on, guys. Why so clueless? You're so willfully slow to believe what the Bible clearly teaches. The Messiah had to suffer first and then raised in glory. So the Lord started at the beginning with Genesis and works his way through the Old Testament, explains all the scriptures that talked about himself. I am so jealous. I would love to have been there to hear, listen, the living word expound on the written word. That's a sermon that won't put anybody to sleep. <laughs> That's gonna, that would be awesome. So he draws near. He draws out of our hearts the true issues, and then he corrects and explains things. It's from the Lord's mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So he knows, what do they need? They need faith, so he's going to take them to the Bible. Because faith comes from hearing the word of God. Did you hear that? If you need more faith, get some really good tapes and listen to some preaching. Come to church more often. Hear the word of God. Read the word of God. Pray the word of God. It will build your faith. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 says that is true. And so he takes him back. Where did he go? Oh, man, I would have loved it. He goes back to Genesis. Jesus is the seed of the woman whose heel was bruised. He's the blessing of Abraham to all nations in Genesis 12. He's the man who wrestled with Jacob. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the voice of the burning bush. He's the Passover lamb. He's the day of atonement. He's the sacrificial offering system of Leviticus. He's the temple in many ways. The prophet greater than Moses, the captain of the Lord's army, the ultimate kinsman redeemer mentioned in Ruth, the son of David, who was a king greater than David, the suffering savior of Psalm 22, the good shepherd of Psalm 23, that I could go on for a hundred of them. He goes back and says, look, it was all right there. Did you guys just read it? Yeah, we read it. We just didn't believe it. That's your problem. Start reading, not to get to the end of your chapter, folks, but to say, God, could you talk to me? Clear some things up. Talk to me through my reading today. And stop when, when you need to stop. 
Just check your list off like, oh, got that in my knowledge little bin, you know? That's not the way it works. And so after that, you know, they say, hey, our hearts were burning when he was doing that. I do want to say that whether you get the burn in your heart when you hear the word of God or no, you're still obligated to obey. You know, sometimes our feelings, our feeler is broken. Some days I feel, oh, man, I've been in sermons. I've been 31 years a Christian. I've heard some doozies where I'm sitting there transfixed. It's like everybody disappears and God is just speaking to me. Like somebody went and told him all my secrets. And the guy's like talking to me. I'm embarrassed. Like, does everybody know? And my heart's burning. And other times I'm sitting there, nothing. Sometimes I'm in worship. Nothing. Cold, tired, scattered. Does it mean there's no God or something's wrong with with my relationship with God? Folks, we're broken human beings. Some days we get the warm fuzzies. Some days we don't. You know what? I wish we could always have burning hearts every day, 24-7. You know what? That's not going to happen. Usually it's quite the other. And once in a while you get that warm zap. You're like, yes, I knew it was all true. My feelings follow my faith. My faith is the leader. And my feelings will bow down to my faith. That's just the way it is. Last point. We'll read it. I'll make a couple points here. So now their problems are resolved. Catch this because this is my favorite part. As the two were closing in on their village, they began to exit from the main road. But Jesus acted like he was going on. He wasn't taking that exit. Walking a bit ahead of them. But they grabbed a hold of him and insisted that he spend the night with them. Come on. Besides, it's getting dark. Spend the night with us. Jesus is a gentleman. The spirit of God, when how he deals with humans, is with social etiquette. One does not invite themselves over to dinner unless one is rude. Or very hungry. (laughs) You know what I mean, generally speaking. So, you know what? Jesus is doing this thing. This is amazing to me. He's pretending. The verb is to pretend. He's pretending like he's going straight. What is he doing that for? He's honoring the prerogative of human beings. I've given you a little light. You got a little touch in your heart. Do you want more? The choice is yours. What are you going to do with the truth I just gave you last Sunday? You want more? As he's walking away. And you know what it says in the Greek? The Greek word to constrain him means to do violence upon. They grabbed him. Are you kidding me? You just like brought so much to us. We got some of our answers. Our heart was burning. They didn't realize it then. They didn't articulate it yet. You think you're leaving us? No way. You're coming home. It's getting dark. Can you tell? You're coming over to our house. And it says in the King James, they constrained him. You know what a constraint is? I hope not, you know, technically that you've ever had to be in constraints. That's what they did to him. And he will always. God's how God works. Listen to the scripture. I love this one. Then he added, Mark 4, pay close attention to what you hear. 
The closer you listen, the more understanding you'll be given, and you will receive even more. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. Mark chapter 4, 24 to 26. This is huge. If you want more, you need to be faithful to respond to the little he's given you. You know, I always use this illustration a lot. You know, growing up with the kids, you know, I just think of one time asking them, one of them, to take the trash out. And it didn't get done. And the trash was piling up and things were falling on the floor. And I kept asking, take the trash out. And then they asked me to go do something, to go do something fun. And I said, you know what? (laughs) I don't mind moving on from here and going to do something fun, but, you know, I've asked you for a couple days to take the trash out. Could you please do what I've already revealed to you is is what I want you to do. Could you please just do the first thing, and then we'll talk about going and having fun. All right? So as soon as that got done and taken care of, then now, okay, now we can move on to the next thing. What has God already revealed to you? And you're just not listening. You're letting it pile up. You're like, whatever, I'm saved by grace. I don't need, hey, listen, he told you stuff. He's revealed stuff to you. And you're going to go back into the situation and pretend like you never heard it? Jesus says, watch out. Watch out. You will lose what you have. Your heart will become harder. You'll, you'll fall further away. You must act on the truth and strike while the iron is hot. That is a scriptural principle, my friends. And they did. Oh, no, no, you're not going anywhere. You come and look what happened. Imagine if they said, you know what? <laughs> okay, nobody calls us clueless, all right? Okay, who are you, a stranger? Did we invite you into the conversation? Where did you come from? You don't even know what's going on in Jerusalem, and yet, oh, yeah, we're so clueless. We had to tell you. (laughs) Or we're really tired, or that sermon through Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus a little long. (laughs) Why don't we talk about, you gave us a lot to think about. We'll talk about this tomorrow. Maybe come by on the way back. They would have missed the whole scene that follows. Jesus, God, the Son sitting at their table, taking charge, being host now, and opening their eyes through, through, to reaching out and breaking bread. And as he breaks the bread, they see the scars. Boom. And all of that, they would have forfeited had they not been faithful with the little they received to respond more. Yes, I'll put it into practice. Does he expect perfection out of you? No. (laughs) Does he expect you do your best and walk with him in truthfulness and love and integrity? Yeah, he does. This beautiful ending here. So they go home together. And now suddenly Jesus is the host. He takes the bread. He asks the blessing. He breaks it and divides it. And that's when it happens. Bam. Their eyes are open. They recognize him. But as quickly as they get it, he disappears. He's starting to say, listen, my disciples, it's now a faith walk. Things are changed. I'm not going to walk with you like this anymore. I'm going to walk with you spiritually. 
And so he, he's showing up and disappearing a lot in the days from resurrection to ascension. He's teaching them, I'm with you, but you can't see me. That's what he's teaching the New Testament Christian with the in and out thing. Now you see me, now you don't. It means I'm with you, but you can't see me. And I want you to learn how to walk that way. They quickly rise and make their way back to Jerusalem, tell all the apostles what happened, and the apostles told them first, hey, he's risen and appeared to Peter. Then they say, well, let us tell you our story. Now, you know, you can't get away from the communion table where it says he breaks bread And that's what finally does it. They go from zero to faith in 60 seconds. And what does it have to do with it? It has to do with this table, the language. I'm sorry. He takes bread. He's the bread of life, he says. And he said, oh, by the way, I'm the bread of life. And I'm going to feed 5,000, 10,000 people with bread. I'm the bread of life. I come down from heaven to give this bread, my body, to the world. And as he's breaking that bread, that so symbolizes why he came. Boom, they get it. They personalize in faith. That scar was for me. Boom, that's when you get it. Isn't that when you got it? When this, he died for me, when that got to you. Last story, a substitute teaching in a really inner city school, high school. I had been witnessing to this kid, a gang member named uh, Domingo. And I'm rambling on, telling him the gospel story. And I hit on something. And it started big, fat tears. And I was so happy, but I wanted to know what it was I said. Because I had been talking, hard to believe, a lot to him. (laughs) And I wanted to know, what was it I said that really did it for you? Hard-hearted, cussing, dressed like a gang member. I mean, not crying. He said that he did it for me. The cross was for me. When he breaks the bread and you see the scars and you see him handing it to you and saying, I did this for you so that you would live forever and never be put to shame. And I hung there thinking about you and your name came to mind. It melts the hardest heart. That's what makes everything alive. Not a bunch of facts anymore, but those nail-scarred hands. They took those nails from me, personally. We're going to enter now into a time where communion we celebrate because Jesus said on Passover, I'm the Lamb of God. This is really my blood spilled out for the sins of the world and my broken body. And all he meant by that for you guys is that it's a symbol of the cross and God's love has to get on the inside. Nothing magic in it. He's just saying this is a symbol to help you grasp that what happened on the cross needs to get inside where it can make you alive. So here's how we take communion. We pass out first the bread, the little matzah. Interesting that it is all matzah are striped and pierced. Very interesting little thing God had allowed to happen because by his stripes we are healed, his flogging, and he was pierced for our transgressions. You hold that until we're ready to receive together. Hold it. Now, the first song is always an instrumental because we want you to not be distracted by singing. 
Think long and hard about some of the ways the Lord has challenged you in this service. Listen to me. Do not play church. It just gets you nowhere. Connect with me right now. All right? Reconnect. Refresh the page. You have to talk to him about some of the things that came to mind today. Don't push them aside. So during the first song, pour out your heart. Lord, that point about that, I hear you loud and clear. The point about taking out the trash, I, I understand I'm still doing the same thing you told me to stop, and that's getting in the way of our walk. Confess. He says, if you confess, I'll I'll cleanse you. Talk to me about it. So we let the first instrumental song allow you to kind of process a little. It takes a little bit. Then then I'll come up and we'll pray like usual, and then we'll take it together. Now, let's say you're sitting here. You've never asked Christ to be your Savior. It's as quick as this. Dear Lord, I'm a rotten sinner. I need your love. I believe in you. Please forgive me then you can take it with us. You don't have to be a member of a church to receive. You just need to be a born-again Christian. All right? So it's as easy as that. And then the cup will be passed. Hold it, and we'll all take it together after we sing a worship song. All right, let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love that was demonstrated on the cross. Now, back in the day, Lord, when you broke bread... And it was through a communion-type service that lights were turned on and eyes opened and hearts ministered to with peace. And I would venture to guess there are folks here that could use a little light, a little peace in their troubled soul, a little hope and joy. And I pray that as we break the bread and drink the cup, and remember the Lord's death on our behalf, that those very things would happen to these precious ones for whom you died in love so dearly. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, here comes the bread and the instrumental time when you can pour out your heart to the Lord.
I'd just like to share with you my own experience just then. It was a struggle for me to do what I asked you to do. And I think it was for a reason. For me to be able to encourage you who had a hard time collecting your thoughts and feeling really bad, like, what a loser, I can't even do that. You know, they give me three minutes to come up with something here and I'm blank as usual because I'm a loser. Look, how I was feeling like a loser, I'm the one who preached it. And I'm sitting there, I'm still thinking of the message and how things are going to close and all of this. And I heard him say in my heart, it's enough. Put yourself in my hands. My death on your behalf is enough. It's enough. I'm not encouraging you to be slack. I'm encouraging you who are weak, like me, that it's not up to you to have had it perfectly right in the last five minutes. This was enough for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your broken body. Broken body of Jesus, that is enough. Your grace is enough. Yes, Lord, we, as you call things to mind, we want to confess them to you. But still, it doesn't even hinge on us. It hinges on the grace of God. We are saved through faith and just simply trusting you. You have done all that is needed to be done. That's the joy of the gospel, the relief to our souls. So we eat this bread and we know, Father, we just blanketly confess our sins and our moral weaknesses to you and trust wholly and solely in your death on our behalf. In Christ's name, we eat the bread together. Amen. Let's eat together. All right, now the cup.
There's a really cool new, it's probably not new, laundry product that you touch the stain with the stuff and it just disappears. It's very cool to a guy. And uh, I used it once and I couldn't help but think of the blood of Christ that says, though your sins are stained like scarlet, though they be just red and, and just soaked and terrible, they'll be white, white as snow. My friend, uh, we're capable of doing some real blasphemous things in here and in here and with these hands. His word promises that this, the blood of his son, is symbolic form here, will take it all away. That he died in anguish for those very things. They're gone. He says, I've removed it. Now he just says, here's a metaphor for you all to, to think of cleansing yourselves by drinking my blood, which is kind of a crazy thought, but it goes in and, and wipes everything out to perfectly as if you've never sinned. So I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring healing to you regarding those bad things that still gnaw at your conscience. It's gnawing for no good reason because Jesus says it's gone. Gone, gone, gone. Paid for on the cross. Paid in full. Father, thank you for just a simple way to confess in and say, Lord, that was a hideous thought, that was a hideous deed, was a hideous thing to say. And all of us have a, a list a mile long. And we bring that list to you, Lord, the things we know about and the things that we don't even know about. We trust that the blood of your Son, as you have said, will cleanse you from all sin and forgive you from all unrighteousness. So we thank you, Lord. The symbolic action of taking the cross and putting it inside our bodies, the, the blood that you shed, the payment inside of us, Lord, to give us life eternal. We thank you. In Christ's name, drink the cup together. Praise God. Let's stand together and sing the last song.
Now may the love of God our Father, the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the constant loving presence of the Holy Spirit go with us now. Fill our lives with your blessing, Lord, as we serve you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace. We'll see you Wednesday or next Sunday. Or at baptism. <laughs>